Hi, I'm Nim, and this is a spoonful of medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On this episode, we're talking about diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. It is when that insulin ain't working, and ketoacidosis and a whole bunch of metabolic problems ensue. It's not an uncommon presentation, and you probably have seen a case in the ED, on the ward, or even in the ICU. It's a high-yield topic, both for exams, but also for clinical practice. So, join me in this episode as we take a look at what DKA is, how it presents, and how we manage it. Okay, let's go. Let's start off with a case. Meet Elias. He is an eight-year-old boy who's presenting to the ED with a low-grade fever, nausea, and abdominal pain. On history, you find out that he's had two weeks worth of increasing polyuria and polydipsia. He's thirsty all the time. He's also had a two kilo weight loss in the last week alone. He hasn't had much vomiting, but he does complain of constantly feeling nauseous and so hasn't had all that much to eat. The family history is pertinent for a first degree family member, his own brother with type one diabetes. On physical examination, he is somewhat lethargic, but fully cooperates with you. There is no signs of trauma and no signs of added infection. His vital signs find slight tachycardia, as well as the respiratory rate that is on the upper limit of normal. His oral mucosa are dry, and his cap refill time is about three seconds. You gain IV access and a point of care bedside glucose check finds a BGL of 30. Subsequent ketone check has ketones of five. You get a blood gas, which shows a pH of 7.1. His bicarb is 10. His anion gap is elevated. You think this kid has DKA. So what exactly is DKA from a pathophysiology perspective? DKA, in its essence, is an issue with insulin deficiency, for example, in type 1 diabetes. Insulin deficiency means that your cells that would take in glucose via the insulin-dependent glute transporter, or GLUT4, can't do that. And so, there's an increase in counter-regulatory hormones, like glucagon, catecholamines, and cortisol, that cause your body to metabolize triglycerides and amino acids, or fats and muscle in order to use for energy instead of glucose. What this means is that your serum levels of glycerol and free fatty acids will rise because of lipolysis and your levels of alanine in your bloodstream will also rise because of muscle catabolism. Meanwhile, in the liver, glucagon also stimulates mitochondrial conversion of all those free fatty acids into ketone bodies. In your usual state, insulin would prevent ketogenesis, but when you have no insulin or insulin's not working, ketogenesis proceeds unimpeded. The major ketones produced are acetoacetic acid and beta-hydroxybutyric acid. You can remember them for your exams. But the main point is these are strong organic acids, and they are what cause the metabolic acidosis. Acetone is also derived from the metabolism of these ketone bodies, and that is what leads to the acetone-like breath that you may have heard of in DKA. Without insulin working, 
you get hyperglycemia because all that glucose is just swimming around in your bloodstream. Your kidneys can't handle that glucose load and so it loses it in the urine and hence you get glucose in your pee or glycosuria. The glucose in your urine also causes an osmotic diuresis, meaning that it pulls water into the urine and so you get lots of loss of urinary water and so people with DKA often complain that they have to pee all the time or polyuria. This also leads to dehydration because you're losing an unreasonable amount of water. Urinary excretion of ketones also obligates the loss of sodium and potassium and so you lose a lot of electrolytes in this whole process as well. Ultimately, what this means is DKA is a metabolic disorder that can cause havoc on your blood sugar levels, your metabolic parameters as well as your electrolytes. So it needs to be recognized quickly and treated quickly. Before we get into all of that, let's look at how common DKA is. DKA and its complications are the most common cause of hospitalization, mortality and morbidity in children with type 1 diabetes and is frequently present at diagnosis. Studies have shown that approximately 30 to 40% of children that have type 1 diabetes present in DKA and those numbers are far too high. The factors that increase the risk that a child will have DKA at first presentation include an age younger than five years old, a delayed diagnosis of the diabetes, lower socioeconomic status, and also those living in underprivileged backgrounds. DKA can also present in the child with known type 1 diabetes. In fact, DKA occurs at rates of up to 6 to 8% per year. Those with type 2 diabetes aren't unscathed, however, and although less common, ketosis and DKA can still occur in children with type 2 diabetes. So, a presentation of DKA does not determine the type of diabetes a child has. Yes, it's more likely to be type 1, but you can't make that call on DKA alone. Now let's have a look at what DKA presents like clinically. On history, the earliest symptoms of diabetes are related to the hyperglycemia and are most apparent in children and adolescents. These symptoms include polyuria, which is due to the glucose-induced osmotic diuresis we mentioned earlier, polydipsia, due to increased urinary water losses, and so you get dry and you get thirsty, and also fatigue because your body is needing to catabolize muscle as well as fat, but also we can't use glucose as efficiently. Other symptoms include weight loss, nocturia, as well as new onset enuresis. The child may also complain of abdominal pain and vomiting, and so DKA should always be in your differential for children with abdominal pain or that come in with nausea and vomiting. Next, you want to ask about any precipitating factors for the DKA. This can include poor metabolic control or missed insulin doses if the child is known to have DKA, because missing out on insulin means you're in an insulin deficit. Illnesses such as intercurrent viral illness or bacterial infection can be associated with vomiting and dehydration and can precipitate DKA by increasing the stress hormone levels like catecholamines and cortisol that are rushing around the body and these in turn increase hepatic glucose output and cause peripheral insulin resistance. 
Medications that may have been cited recently, such as corticosteroids or atypical antipsychotics, can also precipitate DKA, so it's important to ask about that. And finally, alcohol, especially in adolescents with type 1 diabetes, can precipitate DKA. Next, you need to examine the patient, and your physical assessment should include the following. Firstly, assess their hydration status. Remember, DKA is associated with polydipsia, polyuria, and vomiting, so you want to look for any signs of intravascular volume depletion, and this is things like tachycardia, poor peripheral perfusion, and degree skin turgor, although that can be unreliable in children. Next, assess the respiratory status of the patient. Those with DKA and a metabolic acidosis can have hyperventilation or deep Kussmaul respirations in order to compensate from a respiratory sense for the metabolic acidosis. Here, they're blowing off more carbon dioxide in order to preserve the pH of their blood. Next, you want to assess if there's any potential sources of infection that could have precipitated the DKA. This includes a respiratory infection, a skin infection like cellulitis, appendicitis, or even sepsis. So keep an eye out for that. Finally, you want to assess the neurological status of the patient because cerebral edema is a very real potential complication of DKA. Signs and symptoms of cerebral edema include headache, irritability, a rising blood pressure and a slowing of the pulse, as well as reduced level of consciousness. Papilledema is a late sign. Now that we have an idea of what a patient with DKA presents like, the next thing we need to do is order some investigations. The first, to no surprise, is a blood glucose level. And in DKA, this is often extremely elevated because you have no insulin working and so glucose can't get into the cell and it remains in the bloodstream, hence hyperglycemia. Along with blood sugar levels, you also measure serum ketones and this can be done at the bedside using routine testing strips. And to no surprise, in DKA, your serum ketones will be elevated and usually, an elevated ketone level is anything above 0.6 millimoles per litre. Next, we need a venous blood gas, and this is to assess the acid-based status of our patient, and also to risk stratify the degree of severity of DKA. As you would anticipate in DKA, there is a metabolic acidosis, with the pH being less than 7.3. You will also have low serum bicarb in this metabolic acidosis state. The serum PCO2 or partial pressure of carbon dioxide, however, is usually low because the patient's trying to compensate by blowing off more CO2 by breathing faster. Another thing to look at on the blood gas is the anion gap, and it's useful to estimate the severity of the ketosis. So at the start, patients have a high anion gap because there's heaps of ketones. But as the DKA is treated and ketones are getting washed out and reducing in concentration, that anion gap reduces. The next important investigation you will need are serum electrolytes. Metabolic and fluid derangements always cause havoc on electrolytes and DKA is no exception. Let's start with sodium. 
Patients with DKA can have low, normal or high serum sodium levels, but despite that, overall, their body is in a sodium deficit. The reason for this is because there's two opposing forces that affect the sodium levels in hyperglycemia. The first is that the high blood glucose levels tend to lower the serum sodium concentration because all that sugar pulls water into the vascular space and that dilutes serum sodium. On the other side, however, the glycosuria in your kidneys from the osmotic diuresis tends to raise the serum sodium level because you're becoming drier and drier. So serum sodium levels can be varied. At the end of the day, the main thing to remember about serum sodium in DKA is that high blood sugar levels can give you erroneously low serum sodium. So you need to correct for that. And there's heaps of calculators online. I like to use MDCalc. And the second point is that when you treat someone with DKA, you want to closely watch the serum sodium as not to change it too quickly. The next electrolyte is the famous potassium. Those with DKA have an overall body potassium deficit, but despite this, their serum potassium levels may be normal or even high. And the reason behind this is there is a redistribution of potassium from the intracellular space to the extracellular space. For the physiology nerds of us out there, some of the potassium deficit is due to the urinary potassium loss from the osmotic diuresis, thanks to the ye olde ketones. Elevated aldosterone levels because you're intravascularly dry also caused increased renal excretion of potassium. Additionally, potassium may be lost through vomiting or diarrhea that may be coexisting with your DKA. Finally, during DKA, potassium ions redistribute from the intracellular space to the extracellular space due to hypotonicity causing solvent drag, intracellular protein and phosphate depletion, as well as buffering of hydrogen and ions in the intracellular fluid. So ultimately, in DKA, although your serum levels may be normal, your whole body is potassium deplete. This is a really important point to note because regardless of initial potassium level in DKA, the therapy that we give, being fluids as well as insulin, will lower the serum potassium concentration. And so we need to anticipate a falling serum potassium and potential need to treat hypokalemia. Finally, I want to mention the renal function in children with DKA because those with DKA have acute increases in serum creatinine compared to their baseline, reflecting acute kidney injury. In fact, AKI can occur in up to 40 to 50% of children with DKA. Within this group of children who have AKIs, a lot of them can have stage 2 or stage 3 AKIs, which is bad news and often is pre-renal in nature, i.e. it's because they're so dehydrated. Nonetheless, in children who have AKI during DKA episodes, they have a higher long-term risk of diabetic kidney disease, so it's really important to assess their renal function and keep an eye on it for the future. Other investigations that you may consider in a presentation with DKA include a full blood count, which often shows a high white cell count, tests for infections such as a throat swab, a chest x-ray, a urine MCNS, or even a respiratory PCR. If this is the child's first presentation of diabetes and they present in DKA, 
Often the endocrine team like to order other investigations that don't help in the acute situation but do help ascertain whether or not this child has type 1 or type 2 diabetes. These include things like insulin autoantibodies, anti-get antibodies, zinc true transporter antibodies, as well as assessing for thyroid function testing and celiac antibodies because thyroid disease as well as celiac disease can be comorbid with type 1 diabetes. So, to recap, if someone presents in DKA, we want to get a blood glucose level, a blood ketone level, a venous blood gas, a urea creatinine or renal function testing, as well as consider a full blood count, infective screen, and you may want to do thyroid function testing, celiac disease, and autoantibody testing. Now, let's take a look at how we manage and treat DKA. The first thing to consider is that patients with DKA are often quite dehydrated and so we really need to replenish these fluid stores. In order to do this, if a patient is particularly dehydrated, they may need a fluid bolus with some normal saline and the dose of that is 10 to 20 mils per kilo. Patients who aren't shocked will receive their maintenance fluid dose with their deficits corrected over 48 hours. And here, the fluid of choice is normal saline plus 40 millimoles of potassium. Because remember how we said earlier, treatment of DKA, we anticipate a fall in serum potassium. Whilst the initial rehydration will reduce blood sugar levels to some extent, we need insulin therapy to actually normalize the blood glucose level and turn back and turn off the ketogenesis and catabolic state. So in a child with DKA, we start an IV insulin infusion. And it depends on the guideline that you're reading for the specific dose. And in Queensland, the recommendation is 0.1 units per kilo per hour. After we've started the fluids as well as insulin, the next thing we need to do is closely monitor the patient because there's a lot of metabolic changes and fluid shifts that will be happening. In this initial phase, patients are often admitted to the pediatric ICU. They get regular vital signs, they get their blood sugar and ketones checked every hour, and they get a blood gas every second to fourth hourly to make sure our metabolic changes aren't happening too rapidly. And also, our therapy is working. They have a strict fluid balance and also get quite frequent neurological OBS because there is a risk of cerebral edema. As our therapy takes effect, we anticipate that our blood sugar levels will fall as well as our ketone levels will reduce and our acidosis will slowly resolve. As the blood sugar levels do drop, it's important that we add in some sugar into our IV fluids because remember we have this constant insulin source in our IV infusion running in order to stop the catabolism, but we need to make sure that we don't drop the patient's blood sugar levels in the process. The main thing to remember is that we never stop the insulin. That is paramount. The next thing that we anticipate is that there will be electrolyte abnormalities, things like hypokalemia, hypophosphatemia, you get the picture. So it's not uncommon to need a lot of IV or oral replacement of multiple electrolytes. Finally, I want to mention cerebral edema, which has already come up a little bit in the podcast. It is the dreaded complication of DKA, and it occurs in up to 0.3 to 0.9% of episodes of DKA. And if it happens, it has a 25% mortality. So it's something to never miss. 
It is thought that during DKA treatment, a decline in the serum osmolarity as we correct the hyperglycemia and there is sodium shifts causes the serum to be more dilute and hence the water goes from in the vessels to into the brain cells and that causes cerebral edema and then consequent cerebral or neurological damage. Warning signs for cerebral edema include headache, inappropriate slowing of the heart rate, recurrent vomiting, a change in your neurological status so the child becomes more restless or irritable or a drop in their GCS or level of consciousness. The immediate management of cerebral edema is paramount and this includes raising the head to 20 degrees, giving the patient some oxygen as well as importantly administering hypertonic saline or mannitol in order to reduce the degree of cerebral edema and therefore reduce the degree of cerebral damage. So now, what's going on with Elias? You've given him some fluids, you've given him the insulin infusion, and now it's two days later, and all of his acidosis has resolved. The endocrine team is very happy with his progress and they tell you that we can now turn off the insulin infusion and change him to subcutaneous insulin injections. And they remind you to stop the insulin infusion one hour after his first subcutaneous insulin dose. Well done, you've successfully treated Elias and helped him out of his DKA. And with that, it's time for a recap. Diabetic ketoacidosis is caused by a decrease in effective circulating insulin, insulin resistance, and increased production of counter-regulatory hormones. The result is a lot of keto acids being produced and not enough glucose being used up. This leads to metabolic acidosis and a whole host of electrolyte and fluid shifts. Children may present in DKA at any age with or without a previous diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. DKA can also occur in those diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, however, that's far less common. Presenting symptoms can include polydipsia, polyuria, enuresis, weight loss, vomiting and abdominal pain. On examination, you can anticipate weight loss, dehydration, fatigue or a degree of lethargy, as well as potentially signs of infection that has precipitated the DKA. Urgent investigations include a blood glucose level, a finger brick ketone level, urea and electrolyte levels, as well as a venous blood gas. You can consider other investigations as pertaining to your differential diagnoses, concern for infection, as well as if this is a first diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. The management of DKA centers around three pillars. One is fluid resuscitating and ongoing fluid replenishment. Secondly, is to give insulin via an insulin infusion. And thirdly, it's close monitoring. That is a vital science, blood parameters, as well as concerns for cerebral edema. Finally, it's imperative to have a senior involved at all stages of care with DKA, as well as informing your local endocrine team, because they are the people that will be giving ongoing management for this young person. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, 
or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure chopping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.